The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to continue in the book of James. We took a, those of you who were not here last week, it was Mother's Day, so we did uh, a Mother's Day uh, sermon, and so now we're coming back to the book of James. We'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago, and where we left off two weeks ago was James 5, 7 through 11, and that's where James is. He recognizes he's talking to fellow believers and he wants to uh, recognize with them that life is hard. Life is full of struggles and trials for a lot of different reasons. And so he, is, he encouraged them to be patient, be patient believers. Verse 7, uh, verse 8, that theme of patience is all actually throughout the rest of the epistle. Uh, but he was highlighting it in verses 7 through 11. Be patient, wait on God. Endure the hardships. Follow the prophets. Don't sin in the midst of hardships. Uh, especially don't complain against fellow believers. Don't blame your problems on other people. Uh, but trust God. Live in light of His coming. And so that was kind of a synopsis of what we talked about uh, two weeks ago. And now James continues in his epistle. We're nearing the end, by the way. We've got 12 through 20. And in the closing of his epistle here, he has three more kind of independent things he wants to highlight and share with these people. And again, uh, James is writing as the leader in the Jerusalem church, writing to Jewish believers that are spread out all over the place, many of these people outside of Palestine. It's 10 plus years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And James has been, no doubt, over months and maybe even years, getting reports of how the churches are doing spread abroad. And even more recently, uh, he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to address many of these churches in light of struggles that they were having. And uh, so that's really what James is dealing with. He's talking as a pastor, dealing with Christians uh, who are struggling in life in a lot of different areas. And so he wants to encourage them. And many times he has to correct their thinking, correct their behavior. And so he's going to close out the epistle with three more uh, exhortations for them to keep in mind and follow. This is not a narrative. He's not writing a story. It's not one continuous theme. Uh, some commentators look at James when he says something in verse 12 and it seems to be somewhat abrupt and not related to what came before. And that's probably because it really wasn't. It was an issue he had on his heart that they needed to hear. And so he's, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, he's telling these Christians what they need to hear. So that brings us to verse 12. So I'm going to read verse 12. That's our verse of the day. We're just looking at one verse. Uh, and I titled the sermon, Keep Your Word. That's one way of re-saying what James is trying to highlight. Keep your word, keep your promises, keep your vows, or don't vow illegitimately. A lot of ways we could have said it. But I do want to read 7 through 12 just to give us the context of where we've been. So he says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, fellow believers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain. Brothers and sisters, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. 
You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So we are concluding chapter 5. Gone through a lot of heavy stuff. Like I said, James is the, the epistle of action. It's got 60 imperatives or commands in these five short chapters, which is more than any book in the New Testament. So he's correcting their thinking, correcting their behavior, because he already knows they are Christians, they are believers, they're professing believers. And so he's full of these imperatives and commands from chapter to chapter. And in verse 12, this is no exception. We have another imperative on our hands, an obligation before God as believers, energized by the Spirit of God, to heed the Word of God as given by James here, that we might amend our behavior in a way that pleases God in all that we do. And this one happens to be in the area of swearing, taking oaths, or how we use our mouth. What's intriguing and confuses Christians or causes question many times is the way verse 12 begins, but above all, but above all. I mean, he's talked about very important things for five and a half chapters and all of a sudden, but above all, or more important than anything else that I've said, or kind of a crescendo or an exclamation point. Here's one of the most important things you need to keep in mind in in light of everything that I have just said. And many times we would think, well, then it's got to be something that's really big deal. And then we go on to read it and say, uh, but above all, or just as important or more important than anything else, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with an oath. And you're thinking, wow, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. I don't even know if I ever swear with oaths. How does this apply to me and why was this such a big deal for James? Well, it was a big deal. Um, and as, you, as I was reading through commentators, a lot of them were honest and said, I don't know why James says this one command in verse 12 is above everything else. I don't quite understand that it was important to James. And then other commentators do give their opinions, some from the context. Um, and I've got my thoughts and ideas I could throw out there. Uh, this is actually, if you looked at the end of First Peter, this was a common way to just end an epistle, is to kind of just an exclamation point of a command you want them to keep in mind as you're closing. Uh, But also he's talking about, but above all, my brethren, do not swear. And he's talking verbally with your mouth, how you use your mouth. Do not swear. And when he talks about swearing, he's talking about making oaths or promises. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. He's talking about speech. Well, That ties it in with the rest of the epistle because James has been talking about speech almost throughout the entire epistle. The entire chapter 3 of James was talking about the mouth, the tongue, and how we relate to one another as fellow believers by how we use our tongue. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most important things in interpersonal relationships are the words we use towards other people. Our words can build up. Our words can destroy, can't they? And so how we use our mouth is an absolute priority. The tongue. Almost this whole epistle is James giving a theology of how Christians should control their tongue, reign in their tongue, and use their tongue for God's glory, especially in how you relate to fellow believers. Don't complain against other believers. Don't slander other believers and talk about them behind their back. Uh, Be slow to speak and quick to hear. 
When you speak, he said in James chapter 2, speak as though consistent with the law of liberty or speak in love. That's what he said. Every single chapter, uh, there are verses pointedly and specifically related to how we use our tongue, how we talk as Christians. And we are accountable to God for how we use our tongue, how we use our words. And Jesus himself talked about the importance of the words that we say because Jesus said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. When you hear somebody's words, uh, you're getting, it's like a window into their heart. Boy, oh, so that's what their thoughts really are. Oh, so that's what their motives really are. Because we can't read people's minds, but we can hear their words. And so this theme of the tongue and its proper usage and being a good steward of a holy tongue actually has been a theme for James throughout the entire epistle. So to talk about, to put great, grave priority and importance on how we use our words is not uh, out of the context for the book of James. And so that may be a reason why I'm saying, but above all, in light of everything I've said about the tongue, don't swear or make oaths in illegitimate manners because that is almost equivalent to blasphemy. Blaspheming God, violating one of the most basic of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so that's a very much of a possibility in light of James' big emphasis on the tongue. So let's go ahead and look at verse 12 in detail. And I, it's, I just broke it up into four parts to hopefully make it easier to follow there in your outline. And I want to look at point number one uh, regarding how we use our tongues with respect to swearing. And that is, uh, point number one is the, the distinction of honest speech. The distinction uh, and I already talked about that. That's the priority of this command. This command is distinct. It is set apart from all the other ones that he's said by virtue of the fact that he said above all. This is a priority. Keep this in mind. And we need to define well, also what he's talking about when he says swearing. But above all, brethren, do not swear. He says, my brethren, he's, that means fellow believers, fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he puts himself from being an apostle down on the same level that they are. James is also just another fallen believer who walks with feet of clay. James uh, probably struggled in this area as well as all humans do with trying to reign in their tongue. So he's speaking to himself as well as his fellow brothers. And that's why he says, uh, my brethren. So he's not looking down his nose. He's being pastoral. And he's being real. That's what I love about the book of James. It's, it's a real book. Uh, Christians struggle with sin in very practical areas of life, and this is one of them. So the distinction here being set apart, make this a priority in your life of how you use your tongue in, in keeping your word, staying faithful to your promises. I do want to define the word swear because the New American Standard says in verse 12, do not swear. That's the command that is the imperative. As a Christian, we are not supposed to be swearing. Uh, James, when we hear swear, sometimes today we think uh, a bad word, a gutter word or a cuss word an inappropriate uh, language. That, kind of, that is not what he's talking about. Uh, in James' day, 2,000 years ago, swearing was synonymous with taking an oath. I solemnly swear to take an oath or to make a formal promise. It, actually, not even a formal promise. It could just be making promises and swearing in regular, ongoing, private conversation as you interact with people all the time uh, where you're making a vow to somebody. You're promising to keep your word. Or what is it, pinky promise? Is that what kids do? That's a vow, or the boys or the Girl Scouts do they or the Boy Scouts do they make a vow or something like that with their three fingers? Or I don't know how they do that. It's not a Boy Scout. But those are promises. Those are vows. Uh, maybe as a child you made vows and promises. Oh no, I, I promise. No, I, I promise. Or maybe you said I swear. No, I swear. They didn't believe you at first. Or maybe you even went further and said, No, I swear to God. 
wow, you're invoking the name of Almighty God on your word. And so we hear that frequently. And James is saying, don't do that. Don't swear and make vows and promises in illegitimate ways. Um, One pastor wrote this, and I think it's appropriate, and it's quite pointed on this passage. Uh, He writes, Fallen men are basically inveterate liars. Children lie to their parents. Parents lie to their children. Husbands lie to their wives, and wives lie to their husbands. People lie to their employers, who in turn lie to them and often to the public. Politicians lie to get elected and continue to lie once they are in office. People lie to the government, perhaps most notably on their income tax returns. Uh, Educators lie, scientists lie, members of the media lie. Our society is built on a framework of lies. Wasn't that kind of scary? Our whole society built on a framework of lies, leading one to wonder whether our social structure would survive if everyone were forced to speak the truth for even one day. That we live in a world of lies should surprise no one familiar with the Scriptures, which designate unregenerate humanity as children of the devil, the father of lies. Uh, John 8, 44, Jesus said. The basic dishonesty has led men to impose oaths on others in an often futile attempt to force them to be truthful and keep their promises. Both the simple oaths of children, the sophisticated oaths often required by cults and false religions and other organizations and everything from legal contracts to peace treaties are necessitated by the recognition of mankind's basic dishonesty. Why do we have oaths anyway? Why do we make vows in human interactions? Well, that's just an admission that not everybody can always be believed all the time that we have a propensity to lie, right? You go in a courtroom and you take an oath. You're promising not to lie. Well, if everybody just told the truth all the time, we wouldn't need to take an oath. So the fact that we take oaths is an admission of the sinfulness of humanity that we lie. It's a sad reality. And hopefully, James is saying that Christians are going to behave differently in this area than unbelievers. Uh, Christians should be living on a different plane by virtue of who they are, born again. and uh, They are... They have the living Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living in them. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of truth living in you. The Spirit of truth, therefore, we should speak truth as we're led by the Holy Spirit, right? So, going back to our definition in that first point there, the distinction of honest speech is this is a great priority for James. Uh, and, and he's talking about taking oaths, making promises. Uh, basically, he's saying as a Christian, you should be true to your word and keep your word as a Christian. We say we believe in Jesus. Jesus was the truth. I'm a follower of Jesus who is the truth. We say we believe in the Bible and Scripture itself says that the Scripture is truth. We have the Spirit of God living in us and the Holy Spirit is truth. We say we believe in God and God is the truth. So, therefore, His children, we as Christians, should be characterized by being truthful and honest. Now, the problem, and James is actually dealing with a very specific issue in his day that was around in the Jewish culture. It was around in Jesus' time. And that was in the Jewish culture, the Jewish Old Testament culture. Uh, many of the Jews would take oaths on a regular basis in all their interactions in life. And they, these were verbal oaths they would make. Verbal promises, verbal vows. And the leadership among the Jews did this. The Pharisees were notorious for doing this, making vows and promises continually and constantly. And a practice that the Pharisees did, the Pharisees were the a leading class of the Jews. 
they were experts on the Old Testament. They pretty much oversaw the religion of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They professed to believe in the Old Testament, and yet they made vows about everything. And they had kind of a little secret club. They had their own little secret of vocabulary and conversation that they would keep among themselves that they wouldn't always reveal to the average people. And one of those secrets was when they made a vow, the only vows that were they were obligated to fulfill were when they made a, a vow directly invoking the name of God. So if they said, I swear on the Lord, then, oh, they were obligated to keep that one. But they also had all these other kind of trick oaths where they could make a vow to somebody and say, I vow on the temple or I vow on the throne of heaven and I, or I vow on the earth or I vow on the holy city of Jerusalem. And they would make those vows and they knew that since they weren't invoking the name of God, they weren't obligated to keep that vow. So they could literally break that vow, which was totally hypocritical. It was totally deceptive. They didn't reveal that to people. And so they were just rank hypocrites for doing that. And they were not being sincere. They weren't being forthright and honest. They weren't uh, letting their yes be yes and their no be no. They were making false, empty promises to people on a regular, ongoing basis. And they knew it. And they didn't even bat an eyelash about it. And Jesus knew this. He knew this was the practice of the day. This was so common, just like lying is common in our day. Well, everybody does it. Everybody lies on their income tax. Everybody lies at work. Everybody lies in uh, you know, those little white lies that aren't so harmful because we do it today. It's called lying. It's called nuancing the truth just a tad. Telling little white lies. And it's just as evil. So... I want you to go to Matthew 23 just to see this as Jesus had to confront this in his day. And I, I believe that James is actually echoing the very words of Jesus. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 and also Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, this is public. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. This is publicly near the time of his death near the time of the Passover, out in public as a public rabbi and teacher with crowds all around him, possibly hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of people around listening to Jesus preach. And in verse 2 he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So he rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees in front of everybody, publicly. And then he gets pointed in verse 13. He says, but woe to you. He starts talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. He's pronouncing judgment on these men who are in the crowd, who are running the temple, who are in charge, who are the most influential group in Jerusalem. And he starts pronouncing these woes on them publicly. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Wow. Verse 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16. But woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he goes through all these uh, woes that he gives. But let's stop and look at uh, the woe in verse 16. Here's one of the hypocritical behaviors that the Pharisees had, these religious leaders that Jesus needed to expose and condemn. <coughs> it's the same sin James addresses in, in our verse today. Verse 16 of Matthew 23, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. So what the Pharisees did, they had a whole hierarchy of legitimate oaths and oaths that you weren't obligated to keep. This whole scheme, complicated, detailed, 
scheme that really only they were familiar with. And most of the time, they could make an oath on something and then they were not obligated to keep their promise. It would be like us saying, oh, I had my fingers crossed. Well, that's my chocolate ice cream. Yeah, I know I said I'd give it to you, but I had my fingers crossed. You didn't know that, but I had my fingers crossed. You lose. <clears throat> that's exactly what they were doing. Making these false distinctions. If you swear by the temple, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold that is on the temple, because gold is precious. And if you swear by the gold on the temple, that's a legitimate binding oath. Jesus thought that was ridiculous. Verse 17, he says, you fools. That, how idiotic. How idiotic to make those distinctions. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? The only reason that the, the gold is even worth anything when it's on the temple is because the temple is where God literally dwelled. Verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, here was another one of their false distinctions, and whoever makes an oath by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears or makes an oath by the offering upon it, then he's obligated. Verse 19, Jesus thought that was ridiculous. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Verse 20, therefore, he who swears or makes an oath swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Verse 21, and he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And basically what he was saying, anytime you make an oath to anybody, you're invoking God's name whether you realize it or not. You are accountable to God for every swearing oath promise you make to somebody when you vow to keep your word. In other words, Jesus was saying, just keep it simple. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Tell people what your true motives are, what your intent is up front. Otherwise, you're hiding behind hypocritical games, which is sinful. That is the exact same thing that James is confronting here, and he's even echoing the words of Jesus himself. So going back to number one, uh, the distinction. Now we know the context of what he's saying when swearing. This isn't cuss words. These are vows. These are oaths we make. Basically, these are promises we make to other people, and not necessarily in formal settings, but in informal, ongoing, everyday interactions we have with people, whether it's planned ahead of time or just spontaneous vows that we make. So that's the distinction. This is a priority. Let's go on to point number two. After the distinction of showing what a priority this is, is of how we use our mouth in making promises to people in regular ongoing speech, there's the second point is the restriction in our speech. This is also part of the imperative. But above, above all, my brethren, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. So this is a negative imperative. This is, he's telling us what not to do. Do not swear. Do not make oaths. And it's a specific kind of oath. It's an illegitimate, hypocritical oath is what he's saying. James is not, and I am convinced from the context, and how he's dealing with, he's dealing with a specific issue that was rampant in the church because he's writing to a believing Jewish congregation. By the way, the Greeks, as far as we know from history, the Gentiles who got saved in the Gentile culture, the Roman culture, they didn't have this hierarchy of all these O's that they would take day to day as they interacted with people. This was, this was unique to the Jewish community. This was unique to the Old Testament community. And when these Jews got saved, they carried this behavior into the church. And so he's talking primarily to Jewish Christians. They brought this bad habit of abusing oaths in the church as they interacted with one another. By the way, the Old Testament did not condemn taking an oath. There are examples of godly men who took an oath and that oath was honored. And there's a couple of places. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at one because this is quite 
unique. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 24. <clears throat> Today, we make oaths sometimes through in writing. Written contract or like, uh, what was it, Mark Twain and his buddy Huck Finn, they signed it in blood. Cut themselves and they're making an oath with one another, signing it in blood. And, um, so there's a different way. We, maybe uh, we shake hands, make the deal, right? That's an oath. Is that always illegitimate according to the Bible? Well, I don't think so. Here's one example of a godly man, and that's Abraham uh, making an oath. Uh, look at uh, Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, this is one of his servants, it was a trusted servant, it was a servant he knew, it was a, it was a servant who was going to be a faithful steward on his behalf, who had integrity. We know because in light of the uh, message and responsibility he gave to this servant. And Abraham said to this servant of his, uh, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, he said, please place your hand under my thigh. Wow, that's kind of strange. We do handshake. No, I'll stick to the handshake. No, put your hand under my thigh. A little further. And if you, need, if you knew the Hebrew language, uh, that's what it means, a little further. Um, and Abraham said to his servant, put your, uh, place your hand under my thigh. And what he was doing, he's, he's swearing an oath here. Verse 3, and I will make you swear, there it is, by Yahweh Himself, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. I don't want my son marrying a pagan Canaanite woman. I want my son marrying from my people. And so he commissioned his servant to go find an appropriate woman of God for his son. And Abraham did this by an oath. And quite a strange oath indeed. And that faithful, by the way, that steward kept his oath and God honored that oath and provided the perfect woman for Abraham's son to be his daughter-in-law. So not all oaths were uh, condemned in the Old Testament. That's just one example. Um, I don't want to go there, but in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, the Apostle Paul, as a believer and as an apostle of the church, he made an oath um, at one point in his apostolic ministry. So there's an example. Uh, here in Exodus 22, verses 10 and 11, there is a time where an oath was commanded by God. If you got into this situation, say you're taking care, you are a steward, you're taking care of somebody's pet, say you're taking care of their uh, expensive show poodle, and it's a very valuable dog, and it's a show dog and worth uh, $6,000, and it's hard to find, and you, your next door neighbor is entrusting you with this poodle, and you're taking care of it, and the neighbors leave for a week, and they come back, and their poodle is missing, it's gone, and you have to give them back their poodle, but you don't have it. And you tell them, well, uh, I'm sorry, but the poodle, I don't have it anymore. Well, what happened? Well, I think uh, the mailman stole it, actually, as far as I know. I don't know. It's just missing. It's gone. Maybe the neighbor's German shepherd ate it. I don't know, but the poodle is gone. And because it was a valuable commodity of that neighbor, the neighbor might question, say, you know what? You stole my poodle. You're hiding it, and you just don't want to tell me, right? And that's what Exodus 22 is talking about, that if you're ever a steward and you lose something precious that belongs to somebody else, then to validate that you're speaking the truth, you needed to make a vow before God. So there is a command in the Mosaic Law to actually make an oath under certain circumstances. So, which tells us, James is not saying that it was never legitimate ever to make an oath. And I say that because even today in our culture, there are practical situations we're in, in formal settings, like when you go to a courtroom and you testify and you have to make an oath. I don't think that's illegitimate. I don't think that's what James is actually addressing here. Or if you become... Uh, a senator or president of the United States, you make a vow. 
I, I vow before God uh, to uphold the Constitution or to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. I, I would take that oath. I would feel comfortable in a courtroom saying that. And I know that I am obligated before God to speak the truth and to keep an oath. I want to look at one more uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Go there. Very important for us regarding oaths and especially as being believers and as Christians to keep our promises, to keep our word. We're obligated before God. So about the middle of your Bible, you've got uh, Psalms, Proverbs. Keep going. And then you've got Ecclesiastes. And the point is, uh, the restriction is James wants us to refrain from illegitimate oaths is the point I'm trying to make. Specific kinds of hypocritical ones, misleading ones, self-protective ones. But there are legitimate oaths. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 and following, it says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Do not be ha- Don't be in a hurry to make a vow before Almighty God. Sometimes people do that when they get in trouble. They're out on the sea. They're about to die. They're afraid a shark's going to come eat them in the water and they make a vow to God. God, if you get me out of this and I survive, then I'll become a priest or a nun. People have done that all throughout history. God, get me out. They bargain with God. And He's saying, whoa, be careful. Don't be hasty in doing that. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, especially with respect to promises. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. See, he's not condemning all vows, but when you do make a vow to God, fulfill your vow. For God takes no delight in fools. Pay what? Pay your vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Oh, I was just kidding. Yeah, that promise I made, I, I was, oh, it was a mistake. I spoke presumptuously. I wasn't thinking. I was under duress. Or I, was, I didn't really mean it. He says, don't do that. can't say that it was a mistake. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry? See, God gets angry when we don't keep our word. God gets angry when we invoke His name and we don't keep His word. That's why this is so, uh, such an important thing for James. God gets angry when we violate our word. Hence, keep your word. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. What a great passage. That's great context for us. When James, What is James talking about? I'll go back to James chapter 5 and we'll see what James is talking about on the restriction. Okay, Christian, above all, do not swear. What kind of vows should we not be taking, James? Well, the ones that are common practice here in our community and even filtered in our church from Jews abusing biblical precedents in the Old Testament for taking vows that were at times legitimate. And they're taking it to an illegitimate ends and now it's become a problem. It's become rampant in the church. And now people can't even trust each other for being honest with one another and forthright, straight and to the point. Keeping it simple. Somebody who has to keep backing up their word over and over again with an oath or a vow or a promise just reveals the fact that they don't have integrity as a person. They're not trustworthy. They've blown and shot their reputation is probably what has happened. They've, They've said the sky is falling just once too many times. And now nobody believes you. So if you have to keep backing up your words with vows and no, I swear, no, I swear, no, I swear. 
maybe there's a problem with the person's character. So that's what James is addressing here. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth. Now, he's being very specific because this is what the Jews would do in Jesus' day. They would make a vow by heaven or a vow by earth. And those were not to be held accountable for. Only when you made a vow by the Lord Himself. These are the words of the Pharisees. Or if you make a vow with any other oath, any other similar like oath, illegitimate ones, do not do that. Stop that. You're invoking the name of God. Actually, when you invoke the name of God illegitimately or heaven itself, you're actually blaspheming God. And in the Old Testament, the death penalty was deserved for blasphemy. That's how serious it is. That's why James can say above all. Don't do that. Don't make false promises. And don't misuse God's name. It's totally inappropriate. If you're a parent and you've got children, uh, make sure they don't ever use, misuse God's name. Because one of the Ten Commandments there, do not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Don't misuse God's name. And then the second part of the verse that we often don't continue to read, says anybody who violates or misuses God's name, uh, they will be punished by God. They won't get away with it. So it's a serious and severe thing. So from the time your children are young, you need to teach them not to take God's name in vain. You also need to teach your children, my children, not to lie, but to be honest and forthright. And I think about... We were blessed as we were young parents growing up at a church where we were being discipled by older saints. And one of the things that was grilled into our brains as parents as we were raising our little ones are there are some sins that, and behaviors that your children do that you should have zero tolerance for. And they should be few. So we had our short list of things that were zero tolerance for young children as you're raising them. One was um, yeah, biting dad's ankle. That, was, that hurt, so that was zero tolerance. Um, to never allow our young children to say no to mommy or daddy. That was absolutely defiant and undermined basic authority. And if they were going to undermine authority in the mom and dad relationship, they're going to undermine authority without batting an eyelash in every other area of life. And every other area of life is, conducts itself and is structured on a hierarchy of authority. That's why as a parent, so zero tolerance. You do not say no to mommy and daddy. As a matter of fact, we taught our kids from the time they were young, thanks to mentors, was when you tell them to do something, we want eye contact and, and we want them to say, yes, mommy, or do you understand? Yes, mommy. Will you obey? Yes, daddy. So zero tolerance. And then the other biggie uh, for zero tolerance was allowing your children to lie. Because that is so secondary to our nature, and it is so secondary to young children who haven't yet been weaned off of it as sinners. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and even the child knows it. And lying is secondary. And usually a child, a young child, lies to do what? To get out of trouble, right? Or they think they're in trouble, and you're usually, they're usually lying to hide something else. A lamp broke, and they're going to lie about it because mommy or daddy might get mad at me. Or they did something at school they weren't supposed to do and they're going to lie about it because they don't want to get in trouble. And when they lie about it and they're allowed to get to lie about it, they've actually just compounded that sin and it just gets worse and worse, right? And if sin, and if the sin of lying is tolerated, you're, you're going to inculcate and develop and cultivate an inveterate liar. You've got a vicious liar on your hands. So if you've got young children, I know, I know that we did and we're counseled to do it and I think it was the wise thing to do. If your kids were, had a propensity to lie, or you could detect they were about to lie out of fear of getting in trouble, we'd say, well, you know what, I know you broke the lamp, or I know you uh, punched your sister, 
And that's not good. And yeah, you're going to get a consequence for that. But you need to tell the truth about it and not lie about it. Because if I find out that you're lying about it, that's even more consequences. And uh, that is just something you have got to cut. We've got to cut. That's the importance of getting someone to tell the truth, speak the truth, being courageous, being forthright. So on the positive side, let's go on to number three after the restriction of what we need to refrain from doing, and that's telling illegitimate, making false promises and being evasive and being deceptive, not being forthright. The Christian community needs to be typified by what Paul said, speaking the truth in love to one another, right? Words like integrity, being true to your word. Words like sincerity or the the modern popular one for the last ten years. Being authentic. That's in the church. It's, it's an okay word if you look at it in the dictionary. It's nothing new. Authentic just means being sincere, which is actually in the Bible. Sincerity is a biblical word. It's a great word in the Greek because where it comes from is the time in Bible times, James's day when they made pottery. And a lot of times you maybe you made this piece of pottery and you want to sell it to somebody, an onlooker, and many times they would paint their pottery and people would come and they'd inspect it and they'd look at it. And one of the things that somebody was going to buy pottery, the way they would shop, uh, they'd take the pot and then they'd hold it up to the sun and look inside. And if it was totally dark inside, then that was a sincere pot. In other words, it didn't have any hidden cracks or hidden holes in it because what was common, sometimes they'd make a pot and it was kind of cheesy and low quality and when it was done, it cooked in the oven and maybe it had a crack or it broke and it had a little hole in it. And then uh, the sneaky person would get some wax and fill up that hole. And then they'd paint over the wax so that when after it's painted and you looked at it, you can't see the hole and you can't see the crack. And it looks perfect. It looks sincere, but it wasn't. That's the Greek word. If a pot had no holes and it was pure and had no cracks, it was sincere. But if there was a deceptive pot and you hold it up to the sun, then light would come shining through that wax. And you know you have an insincere Pot. You have a cracked pot on your hands. So we need to be sincere. We need to be people of integrity, which takes us to number three. Here's the positive side of the uh, injunction or the command on how we're supposed to use our mouths as we interact and interface with people being honest. And that's the instruction for honest speech. Told us what not to do. Don't swear in illegitimate ways. Don't make false oaths and complicate the matter. But rather be simple as brothers and sisters in the Lord in your approach, speaking the truth in love by, verse 12, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's it. And we should have and develop and cultivate that trust with one another, especially in family relationships, in a marriage relationship. That's where the trust level should be the highest, right? Between husband and wife. According to God, they are one flesh and they're one in every way. They're supposed to be husband and wife. Physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, financially, legally, you are one with your spouse. You also should be one with your spouse in terms of your integrity, uh, your vulnerability, and your honesty with one another. So looking at face-to-face as husband and wife, you should just be able to tell your husband or your wife, here's what I did or here's what I'm going to do, here's uh, where I went, here's how I spent the money, and hopefully the trust in your relationship has been cultivated where you can actually believe each other at face value. You don't have to defend yourself. Well, you want to see the evidence? Do I have to dig out the receipts out of the trash? Do I want, you know, No shouldn't be that way between those who trust one another. And this is the way it should be in the Christian community, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And that's actually the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? 
Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. That is our first resort, trusting our fellow believer in Christ that they're true to their word, that they are being sincere and honest. And as a result, we don't need to be making vows. I hear, do, swear, and promise that I will show up. And No, we don't need to do that. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. That is the instruction. So the instruction is just simply, James is saying, just tell the simple, honest, straightforward truth in love. You know, it's a beautiful, liberating thing when you always speak the truth to another person is you have a clear conscience about it. The problem is if you lie, you always have to cover up your lie somewhere down the road. And sometimes, you know what the problem is? You forget what you said in the lie. Then you get in trouble. And many times, lies eventually and inevitably, they reveal themselves because you can't cover up your sin forever. So it's, it's a beautiful and liberating thing just to keep it simple. Speak the truth to one another in love. God will honor that. He will bless that kind of speech. So let's look after the instruction for honest speech. Finally, the motivation, or one of the motivations for speaking honest, speaking simply, Yes, yes, no, no. The motivation for honest speech at the end of the verse, James says this, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, in order that, so that, for the purpose of, so that you may not fall under judgment. So that you not fall under judgment. He said a similar thing in verse 9. Don't complain against one another. There's a lot of reasons we shouldn't complain, but one he highlights in verse 9 is don't complain against other brothers and sisters in the Lord in order that you yourselves may not be judged. So two times in three verses, he's reminding the Christian community, if you do this, if you behave this way, you are putting yourself in a position of judgment from God. The question is, well, what kind of judgment? Does this mean I could, if I do this, am I going to lose my salvation? No, a true Christian cannot lose their salvation. Your salvation is secure forever in Christ. So a Christian isn't going to be judged with the fires of hell. But if we do sin in this area, uh, Paul said in Galatians that what we sow, we will reap. If we sow sinful behavior by lying, we are going to reap the consequences of that sinful behavior, either temporally in this life or eternally in the next life before God. Because even Christians have to go before Jesus or God as judge. When a believer dies and goes to heaven and stands before God as judge, we're being judged on something different than the unbeliever is. The unbeliever goes before the throne of God and is going to be condemned to hell for rejecting Christ. When the believer goes before God and gets judged, we are judged on our works that we did in this life as we represented Jesus Christ in this life. And the judgment will be, according to specific passages in the New Testament, will either be a loss of reward or a preservation of rewards that we will receive. A loss of privileges or getting to maintain or being privileged to receive blessings from God in heaven. So for the believer, that could be the kind of judgment that we will receive either in the next life in terms of rewards or in this life with negative consequences, whether they're formal or natural consequences because Christians sin. We fall short in this area. So, and God knows that. Another way that James might be using this is he could be saying, and this is consistent with the theme of his book, because in many ways a lot of commentators, and I think legitimately so, say that the book of James is like a whole bunch of tests 
to validate or vindicate the true believing nature of somebody. In other words, there are many things in James that you can look at that would expose a false believer, somebody who just had a profession of faith, but they weren't true Christians. And they would say, here's another test of whether somebody is a true believer or not, because a true believer is going to be characterized as a lifestyle of a person who tells the truth, isn't always being deceptive. Their yes is yes. Their no is no. Yeah, they mess up every once in a while and they sin and hopefully they get convicted and repent. But the pattern of their life, the direction of their life is going to be they are going to be a truth teller because they reflect Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. So it could be that if you've got somebody on your hands who's a professing believer who is continually, constantly being evasive, not telling the truth, lying, they may be revealing their true nature because out of the mouth the heart speaks. And it could be they have an unregenerate heart. And James could very well be saying that because the word he chooses for judgment here at the end of verse 12 is reserved for the judgment that unbelievers get over 30 times in the New Testament. This could be a way that unbelievers are exposed. Christians are supposed to be different than unbelievers. We are light. They are darkness. We are salt. They are tasteless. Christians are supposed to reveal the true character of what is on the inside. And, and James might just be saying to the Christian community, you know, there are some out there in the community, they're not wheat, they're actually weeds. Among the wheat, they are not truly saved. They profess to know Jesus, but they really don't. And you will know them by their fruits, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. And one of the fruits that you'll, they'll be known by is the misuse of their tongue on a continual basis in the way they speak to people in interpersonal relationships. And they are always hiding behind self preserving lies. That could very well be what James is talking about. We as Christians, we need to be different, don't we? Because of the truth, the Lord Jesus who has transformed us, changed our life, born again. In light of that, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is a great summary of why we as Christians should be different and we have the ability to be different than unbelievers. And that is that before we got saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of the devil. We were subject to Satan himself. And then when we got born again, God made us alive in Christ, regenerate, transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his blessed son. And at the point of salvation, he put the Holy Spirit of God inside of us to empower us and even to enable us to fulfill God's requirements. And when you become a Christian, you become a new person, a new creation. And that's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I want to close with this. If you are a Christian, this is your biography. And it's a beautiful one. Therefore, if any man or any woman or any child is in Christ, if you are truly born again, truly a Christian, then you are a new creature. Can I get an amen? Yippee! A new creature. The old things, the sinful things, the dark things, the satanic things, the unforgiving things, that's what it's talking about, have passed away. They are no more. All of your sins, totally forgotten, drowned under the blood of Jesus' crucifixion and death on your behalf. You are a new creature. The old things, every single one of them passed away. And behold, behold is supposed to be a strong word. It's behold, wake up. This is exciting, good news. Behold, get this. You are no longer that way. New things have come. New good things. New exciting things. Because we are one 
with Christ. With that, let's go ahead and thank the Father for salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And He is in the business of making new creatures. Father, we do thank You for our time together. We thank You for the Lord's Day where we have the great privilege to gather with fellow believers, to uh, encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to learn from one another, to sing to You, uh, to, to read Your Word together, to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Thank You for the great reminder, God, of what You do with sinners by making them new creatures through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And every single one of us that, that knows You personally, we thank You for that great gift. God, also thank You for the reminders from James and a major priority of how we are to live on Your behalf, uh, being honest people, being honest, sincere, forthright, short and to the point, simple, full of integrity, full of sincerity because we represent You. Help us to be courageous, not being self-protective in our speech, but help every single one of us to be a courageous truth-teller and also empower us to keep our promises when we make them to people and when we can't keep a promise. God, give us the self-discipline, the self-control of the Holy Spirit to refrain from many words and not make those oaths or promises at all because we know that grieves You. God, we need Your help in this area as we commit it to You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.